thanks Damaris. And I would encourage you, you know, like you said, just to follow along. And if you want to take some notes uh, so you can be better equipped to share what you're uh, listening to and learning. But let me just start out by asking a question. And the question is, did your parents ever have a way of getting your attention, like calling for you, uh, regardless of the setting? You could be in a store, you could be in a mall, you could be out in the front yard. But uh, as for me in my home, before there were cell phones, before there was ability to text, my dad had a whistle. And uh, my parents weren't yellers, uh, but I could be a block away. And if I heard this whistle, I always knew it was just time to come home. And we could be separated in a noisy crowd uh, at a ball game or in a mall, but the whistle would pierce the air. It was just a quick burst. And, and I could never repeat it for my kids. But I hear that and I would come running. And I think I was really like a trained dog because no one else seemed to hear it the way I heard it. But it was dad's way of saying, it's time to come home dinner's ready, find me. And if I'm honest, I wish my heavenly father had an equally effective way of getting my attention. I, I wish it would be that clear that I could just turn my gaze because God is beckoning me. And the reality is, I think God speaks more than I listen. And so today, as we wrap up this series about speaking truth to power, I want to talk about how God might be speaking to us in the most unexpected ways, in even the most subtle ways, but how we can actually train our ears to hear. Now, one of the things I've come to recognize is that God speaks through the power of interruptions, <laughs> those annoying things that sort of get in the way of my way. But because we need to be interrupted from being the center of our own lives, I think there are constant interruptions for our good. We need to be interrupted so that we can actually encourage, show compassion, learn patience, be generous, invite hospitality when we otherwise wouldn't think to do so. We need interruptions so that we don't orbit our own will, our own desires, and our own goals, and our own ambitions. Not to say that those things are inherently and always wrong, but the point is God is forever and always trying to interrupt us so that our lives might align a little bit more with his. So I think of interruptions as happening in two ways. One, they're external interruptions. They force us to stop what we're doing and give our attention to something else. Sometimes that's most needed, and sometimes that's just annoying. It's just what happens. But there's another kind of interruption that I think we're supposed to be tuned into, and that's the internal interruptions. Some interruptions are external. There are kids. There's something that's going on around us, but the other ones are internal. They're the kind that something in our conscience moves. Maybe our imagination stirs or our gut sort of prompts us. It's a desire for good, maybe that wasn't even there before. It's a thought that you can't shake about a person, maybe to pray with or to help. It's feeling led to serve when you feel like you already have enough to do. I believe 
God is speaking truth to the power of the interruptions, and he's doing it internally. But we have all the freedom in the world to tune that out. Now, our problem isn't that we uh, have distractions or interruptions. That's part of life. The question is, is there something that God wants to draw our attention to instead? Is there something else I need to focus on? especially if it feels bothersome. Maybe that's the point. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we invite God to redirect our gaze so that maybe we can see as he sees. And the more sensitive we become to God's spirit, the less annoyed we are with opportunities to help, to bless, to serve others. I want to look at a passage of scripture today from 2 Samuel, beginning in the end of chapter 8 and then into 9. But I want to start by just looking at how David's heart responded to his own success. And in at the end of chapter 8, we get a picture of where David's life has evolved. He's been on the run. He was anointed at an early age, but his promise to be king was late in coming, or not fast in coming. But here we have David as a returning, conquering king. And in verse uh, 13, it says this, David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons around Edom and all the Edomites became subject to him and the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. So we get this picture that David has arrived physically, materially, but not spiritually. Was there more land to harvest was there more nations to conquer? Was there more wealth to acquire? Yes, yes, and yes. Yet even in David's contentment, he turns to ask if there's anyone he can help, uh, if, if there's anyone that he, uh, and, and where this person is. See, David's known as a man after God's own heart. And here we get a glimpse as to why. It wasn't because David is flawless. It was because David was thoughtful. He views his position, his accomplishments, his wealth as nothing more than a simply a gift from God. So when he reaches the pinnacle of popularity, he wonders aloud who can tangibly share and include. And because he holds his resource loosely, he asks a profoundly timely question, one that I think we should all ask as well. This is the beginning of chapter 9, 2 Samuel 9. Listen to one verses 1 through 5. He says these words, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. And he called, they called him to the peer before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? He says, your servant replied, the king asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? And he answered, well, there's still the son of Jonathan, but he's a cripple in both of his feet. Well, where is he? And he said, 
And so he's at the house of Makir. And so the king had him brought there. And when, um, and, and so here you have this son, this, this crippled descendant of his former best friend, Jonathan, under the house of Saul. And he has him brought there. Now, the name of this son uh, is a fun name called Mephibosheth. That's a mouthful. Let me just pause right there before we keep reading. And he says, upon the slaughter of Saul uh, and his sons at Mount Gilboa, the nurse in Jonathan's house fled with Mephibosheth. And in the flight, the child fell and he became a permanent cripple. So when David came to the throne, he thought of his old friend, Jonathan, and to ask whether any of his household remained alive that he might show kindness for the sake of his former best friend. And through a former servant, this guy Ziba, he learned of this crippled descendant and David brought him to Jerusalem, restored him to the estate of Saul and made, a made him a perpetual guest at the royal table. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this story, but when you see this story, Saul was the one who pursued David out of jealousy and was trying to kill David. David has arrived at the pinnacle of popularity, wealth, and fame, and all he could think about is the former house of Saul and his best friend, Jonathan, and wanting to restore this guy's fortune. And he finds this crippled descendant, Mephibosheth. And I'm just asking you, what adjectives might come to mind? What are some of our rhythms that might come to mind? I don't know, radical hospitality, intentional compassion, generosity. There is this sense that just because I've attained these things, they're not about me. And so he, let's just read on a little bit more in this passage. And in verse eight, we see this. Mephibosheth bowed down and he said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring him the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. If you were a cripple, there was no way you were going to earn a living. There was no way you're going to eat like royalty. And yet he has this moment where God speaks truth to his provision. God speaks truth to our provision. And it's really important how we view our position, provision. Is it something that we possess or is it something that we've been entrusted with? Is this something that I deserve or is this something that I get to steward? These are the things that separated David as a man after God's own heart because he viewed all that he had attained with these open hands, not clenched fists. And so when I consider all that I've earned, all that I've experienced, all that I've learned, all that I've done, I ask myself, to what end? 
if I recognize any amount of resource, is it simply because God is gracious and loving or because I'm blessed for a purpose? In a word, yep. David shows this surprising compassion towards essentially a stranger as if it were one of his own. But the real secret is learning to give when giving is its own reward simply because that's who God is. David doesn't give for recognition. David doesn't give for guilt. David doesn't show hospitality or compassion or generosity for any other reason except that that's who God is. And David knows God in an intimate way. He came from those humble beginnings as a shepherd in the wilderness with seven older brothers who had greater access to the inheritance. And so David's whole life was guided by the sense that I don't deserve any of this, but God has been faithful to me all along. And maybe the last thing we learn from this speaking truth to power is that God speaks truth to the power of grace. I don't know how you view what you have. If it's something that you've earned, that you might have deserved, that because of your wit or your work ethic or because of your training, but all of those things are a demonstration of God's grace. And like Mephibosheth, so many of us go through life with our own limp. This is a guy who fled because anyone in the house of Saul would have been eliminated by the new administration. And as the nurse is running away from the, 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 the descending army, she loses track of this son. She drops this kid in such a profound way that he becomes crippled in both feet. So he goes through the rest of his life with a limp until the new administration under David, who views all that he has and all that he is as simply a gift. And he invites him to his table. See, we go through our own life with that same limp. It might not be a physical limp, but we limp along with debt and we limp along with unforgiveness. We limp with fear, we limp with control, we limp with some addiction, we limp with some entitlement. And yet, like Mephibosheth, we're invited to sit at the king's table, not because we deserve it, but because God is so incredibly gracious. And if that's what God does to us, then why wouldn't we consider that part of our own calling as well? Despite our inadequacies, we're treated like royalty as we're invited to the very presence of God. And grace says that you still have what it takes to be like me. It reminds me of an old story I heard about an older man who saved and saved for years because he had this dream, a dream vacation of going on a cruise ship. And so with every paycheck, he would put a few dollars aside till the one day when he retired and he could finally go on the cruise ship. And along the cruise ship, he was found eating on the deck in this brown bag of a meal. 
Well, after a couple of days of it, he was really content, but some of the staff, the crew members came and said, you know, I'm wondering, we've noticed you out here. We don't want to interrupt your picnic lunch, but why is it that you haven't gone in? And why do you eat all your meals outside? And he says, oh, I'm fine. But here's the thing. I only had enough to afford my way onto the ship. I didn't have enough to cover the meals too. And they said, oh, well, sir, the meals are all included. You can sit. And they found a seat for him, not only in the dining hall, but at the captain's table. And I thought that is such a picture of what it means to walk in the inheritance of God and his grace. See, too many Christians, I think, settle for simply being saved from hell, but never realize that intimacy with God is also available. That we can experience God's presence, get familiar with his voice, not because we deserve it or because we're in crisis, but because the one who's calling out to us is constantly trying to interrupt us, sometimes externally, sometimes internally. Too many of us, I think, settle for forgiveness, but hold on to our own unforgiveness. We're happy to receive that from God, but not happy to share it with another. We settle for knowing about God, but knowing never uh, but not knowing the, how the Spirit might speak over us or, or whisper to us or heal us or guide us or even convict us. This week, I was sitting with a friend who I've known for years, and I wasn't really sure where this friend stood spiritually. I knew he believed in God. I knew he knew about God. A lot of his life told me by his character and, and, and sort of his example, but I asked him, who is Christ to you? And the best he could come up with is, I think he's a really good example. And I'm far from modeling my life after Christ, but that's kind of what I try to do. And I would say to you, friends, like I said to my friend, Jesus is a good example. And he certainly is a model to follow. But I think he's so much more. And what I could tell was that his voice wasn't really familiar. He's more than someone to call on in crisis and despair. And what I ended up doing was sharing a passage with him. And I said, I simply want you to begin to pray Psalm 139. It's a prayer of examination. It's a prayer of introspection. It's a prayer where we begin to take spiritual inventory and give ear to the way that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to our lives. Maybe say it this way, how God wants to have the power of interruption in our daily living so that we can cultivate the Spirit's voice in our lives. And so as we close, I want to just invite you to pray. And I recognize that on Zoom, there might be some distractions in your own home, but I just want to see if you can just tune out those voices and hear the voice that I'm going to share with you, these scriptures, and let the Holy Spirit begin to speak with you. So if you just bow your heads and close your eyes and listen to my voice at first until you begin to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. This is Psalm 139. Oh God, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise.
You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down, and you are familiar with all of my ways. And before a word is on my tongue, you know it. You know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. What are you anxious about? How might your trust God in God be compromised? Where do you sense God shining light into dark areas or anxious areas? And then he says, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in a way everlasting. I would just invite you to confess any offense or any regret that might come to mind. Invite God to shine light in dark areas, in hurting areas. Our Father in heaven, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active in our thoughts and our minds. I pray that we would give you power to interrupt us with a check in our spirit, with a prompting, uh, with a gut check, with, with a redirection, but that we would align our lives with you. I pray that we would walk with a, a sacred trust of, of all that you've provided, all that you bless. And I pray that your voice would become more familiar to us as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you this week to, to spend some time in Psalm 139. And don't read it like an article. Read it as a meditation. Read it like you're savoring a glass of wine and simply trying to figure out the layers. Savor it. Smell it. I think that God's voice needs to become more familiar to us. And the only way we do is cultivating a hearing discipline. And so pray that prayer of examination daily. Let that be your meditation with God and watch how God begins to speak and speak truth to the power of our interruptions.